0: Thank you, worship team, for leading us this morning, and uh, we're going to dismiss our children to Children's Church at this time. If all of our kiddos, three years through third grade, if you want to send them up here to the front, Uh, looks like Denise and Cindy are here to to receive them. Uh, Otherwise, take your Bible and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 2, Nehemiah chapter 2. They're making their way out, let me uh, just say uh, that uh, in honor of the Super Bowl being next week, I know some of you are football fans and some of you don't even know football is on the TV, but uh, for some reason most of us know that there's a Super Bowl, even though you may not know it's equated with football, it is, it's the uh, championship game for the National Football League and it's next Sunday uh, evening and so uh, this, I guess today is the Pro Bowl, but I, I love, I'm not a huge NFL fan, I'm more of a college football fan, but I do watch NFL football, and I do enjoy the Super Bowl, just getting together more than anything. I like the food. I mean, who, who doesn't like chips and dip and uh, all the other things that uh, you are not supposed to eat because you have this New Year's resolution, but... I love the NFL, and the other day I was just thinking back about like what was the first NFL Super Bowl? What was the first Super Bowl that I remember watching as a child? And and the first Super Bowl I remember watching was the 1986 Super Bowl, Super Bowl 20. So that featured the 85 Bears, the um, you know the, the they had the little chant and the, I forget what it's called, but uh, the Super Bowl Shuffle. That's what it was, and and they squared off against the New England Patriots and beat them 46 to 10. William Perry, Refrigerator Perry, uh, ran for a touchdown. He was the tackle and just a phenomenal game. That's the first Super Bowl I ever remember watching, or I'm sure I watched others, but the first one that comes to mind. Uh, Walter Payton, Mike Singletary. In fact, I want to talk a little bit about Mike Singletary as we get started. Mike Singletary was one of the NFL or is one of the NFL's all-time greatest middle linebackers. I mean he had those eyes. He was all over the field. Phenomenal player. In fact, uh, his he was phenomenal at every facet of the game and he's just a master defensive player. And his story didn't begin when he got to the NFL. His story began as a freshman in high school there at Worthing High School in Houston, Texas. He earned all-state honors both as a guard and as a linebacker his freshman year of high school. So he had a storied high school career. Coach Grant Taft Uh, recognized his talent, offered him a scholarship to come play at Baylor University. There at Baylor, he he lettered all four years of his college career. In fact, he's arguably, if not solidified, as the greatest football player to ever play for Baylor University. In college, he recorded 97 tackles as a freshman. And then as a sophomore, 232 tackles is what he recorded that year. As a junior, he had 188 tackles. As a senior, he had 145 tackles. I mean, he was a phenomenal player. He was a two-time winner of the Southwest Conference Player of the Year Award. He was a two-time consensus All-American. And he was a two-time recipient of the Davy O'Brien Memorial Trophy. Back with that trophy was not geared toward quarterbacks. It was geared toward the best player in the Southwestern part of the of the United States. In 1981, when he was finished with college, he was drafted by the Chicago Bears in the second round as the 38th pick. He became a starter pretty quick into his rookie season, the seventh game of the year. He became a starter and went on to become uh, one of the members of the all-rookie team that season. Played for 12, 12 years in the NFL and had an impressive career During those 12 years, he amassed 1,488 tackles. He had seven interceptions, 12 fumble recoveries, and in that 12-year span of his career, he only missed two games. He was a three-time NFC Player of the Year, a two-time NFL Defensive Player of the Year. He was a 10-time Pro Bowler, and in 1990, he was named the NFL Man of the Year, and of course, he was a Super Bowl champion in Super Bowl 20. He's known as Samurai Mike. He was referred to as the Minister of Defense, and the reason he held those titles is because he could make a tackle, he could make the play anywhere on the field, anywhere along the gridiron, you would find Mike Singletary. In fact, it didn't matter who was running the football or where the ball was on the field, somehow Singletary knew where the ball was going to be, and he knew how to get there in time to stop the play. In fact, one time after a game, a CBS reporter came up and asked him and says, Mike, how do you get clobbered by a couple linemen on one side of the field? And then just a few seconds later, you're making the play on the other side of the field. Mike Singletary looked at that reporter and very simply said, I get up. I get up. I get knocked down and I get up. You see, Mike Singletary understood the necessity of getting back up and going to the work. And as we're working through the book of Nehemiah this season, uh, we've already learned that Jerusalem was down. Jerusalem was was way down. Its walls were broken. Its its gates were destroyed. Many of the people who had returned with Sheshbazar and, and Zerubbabel and Ezra had come back to Jerusalem, but because of the conditions, they had, they had uh, left and they went to the countryside, no longer residing within the city. The people were discouraged. The poor were suffering from high taxes. The Persians were taking all of their revenue, and all of the neighboring groups were dominating in commerce and definitely dominating in the arena of politics. And so it was a bad day to be in Jerusalem prior to Nehemiah's arrival. Nehemiah's in Susa. He's there in the the citadel, there with the king, King Artaxerxes. And as Hananiah and some other guys come and visit Susa, they give Nehemiah a report of the desperate situation back in Jerusalem. They tell uh, Nehemiah of the shameful state of both the city as well as the people Nehemiah heard that report and immediately began to pray, immediately began to seek the face of God. He prayed, the Bible tells us, for four months, praying and waiting and seeking an opportunity to speak on behalf of the city before the king. And during those four months of prayer, as we learned last week, Nehemiah prepared. He got ready for what God was going to do. You see, Nehemiah believed that God would act. Nehemiah believed that God was going to be gracious toward his people in accordance with what his word had said. And so he pissed persistently and he patiently prayed for God to move. His faith also led him to make those preparations, to think of all the things he's going to need and, and to think f- this into the future. What is it going to take to make this city come back to life? He was a man of faith, but he was also a man of action. And the time came during all those praying and during all those preparations, the time came for action. The opportunity presented itself to address the king. And Nehemiah, there before King Artaxerxes, shared the need to the king. And then shortly after, what we read is all of a sudden Nehemiah has been praying, he's been preparing, he presents the need to the king, and now he's on his way. To Jerusalem, a city he's never been, but now he's going there with a the calling of God upon his life. And so let's pick up in verse 9 of Nehemiah chapter 2. The Bible says, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, It displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And so I went to Jerusalem, was there three days. Then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I expected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. And then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant servant, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, They jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you were doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we are his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem." Lord Jesus, I pray that you would take your word this morning and the story of Nehemiah and his coming and return to Jerusalem. And Lord, I pray you take this story that's about the people of God hearing what the situation is and hearing the vision you'd placed in Nehemiah's heart. And Lord God, I pray that we would learn how to rise and to build and to trust you every step of the way, even in the face of opposition. Lord, speak to our hearts, give us ears to hear this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Nehemiah, we know, we've already seen it all through the first two chapters of this great book. We know he was a man of prayer. But as we move here into the latter part of chapter 2, we're also seeing he's a man of action. Now, we've already seen glimpses of his action as he was preparing, even while he's praying. But Nehemiah was a man of prayer and a man of action. He's an A-type personality. He's a go-get-it-done type of guy. You see, his story reveals to us that there is a time to pray, there is a time to prepare, but there's also a time to act. There's a time for everything in this life. We must pray, we must prepare, and we must go to the work. For Nehemiah and the Jews in Jerusalem, the time for them to get to the work had come. It was no longer a time just to pray. It's no longer a time just to prepare. Now it is a time to get to the work. And here we find a lesson that the church today, I believe, desperately needs to hear. That is, we need to get to the work. Think of it with me. How many times? How many times have we saw a need but never took action? How many times do we see out there a need in our community, a need in our families, a need in our church, but we fail to take action? How many times do we pray even in accordance with those needs? We see those needs perhaps, and we begin to pray, but for whatever reason, we're never moved to take action. How many times do we make preparations, we draw up plans to do something, but we never take the steps necessary to put it into action? You see, there comes a time when we have to do, or what we need to do is not just talk about it. We don't need to just pray about it. It's time to put feet to it and get to the work. Proverbs fourteen twenty three says this, In all toil, or as the New American Standard says, In all labor there is profit. But mere talk leads only to poverty. You see, we can talk about things until we're blue in the face. We can talk about things all day long. But until we begin to do those things, begin to do the work, it's nothing more than prayers and preparation, which is a good thing. But God doesn't lead us to just pray and to prepare. He's leading us to pray, prepare, so that we can go to the work. And that's what Nehemiah is exemplifying here for us in this passage. Nehemiah moved past the talking and the preparation to action. And he likewise is now moving the people of God, the Jews here back in Judah. He's moving them past the talking and past the preparation to action. I mean, i got to believe that as these Jews returned with with, Belshazzar, or with Shesbazar and Zerubbabel and Ezra, there was a lot of times that they're sitting around drinking tea together and drinking beverages together and having small talk and chit-chat and thinking about the glorious days back in the yesteryears, wondering and hoping for those years to come back. But they never took those actions. Nehemiah was saying, hey boys, it's time to just, not just prepare, but it's now time to act. You see, this wise and strong leader understood what was necessary to inspire the people to the work. And in this passage, I want to share with you four necessities to inspire people to the work. And then I'm going to bring some application. How does this apply to us? What are some implications for us today? So necessity number one, see the need. We see here in this passage that Nehemiah helped the people see the need. We also see in this passage how Nehemiah himself needed to see the need. He needed to see the need. He had heard the reports. He had heard the bad stories. But he needed to see what it was all about. Back in Susa, Hannah and I had shared that report. It inspired him to pray and to plan for four months in preparation. It inspired him to take some action and, and share before the king this need. But his eyes had not yet seen the shameful state of Jerusalem and of its people. So imagine with me. How gut-wrenching it must have been for Nehemiah. He's there with his entourage, those soldiers and others traveling with him. And he begins to approach Jerusalem. It's up above him on the hillside. And he looks up there, this grand city of what it once was, now lying in ruins. The greatest city on the face of the earth at one point in history is now lying in nothing but rubble. So after a three-day rest, it was now time for this leader to see with his own eyes what the great need was. Nehemiah records how he he went out by the cover of night to inspect the walls and the gates of the city, but he told no one where he was going or what he was doing. You see, he saw with his own eyes that they were truly broken down, that the walls were broken down, the gates were burned with fire. This city of David, this city of the king lay in shambles. This city that represented the nation built by God himself lay in ruins. Nehemiah saw that the walls and the gates of Jerusalem had to be rebuilt, not simply to to defend the fortifications and, and to boost the economy of this city. No, he understood and he saw with his own eyes that the city walls must be rebuilt in order to exalt the name of God. We've been singing about this morning, all about the glory of God and the name of God. And one of the ways that for these Jews to exalt and magnify God was to have this grand city as a testimony to the glory of Almighty God. You see, in that day, in that that worship setting, the Shekinah glory, the presence of God existed and manifested itself there in the temple. And so the city bore the glory of God, and yet the glory of God had been diminished From human's perspective, as they looked upon the city, the surrounding nations would have said either two things have happened here. Either the God of Israel no longer has the power to protect and to bless the people that he says are his, or God has forsaken them. Neither one of those was true. God is the God of all. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is the master over everyone. He has already demonstrated how he has authority and sovereignty over the greatest king on earth at this point with King Artaxerxes. He's also the God that the Scripture testifies that will never leave us nor forsake us. The reason Jerusalem lay in ruin and in shambles was not because of God's glory or God's inability. It was because of the sin of the people of God. Now, after this judgment of 70 years, it's time to rebuild The city and to exalt the name of God once again. So, the glory of God here for Nehemiah was what was at stake in this enterprise. It wasn't Jerusalem's welfare, it was the glory of God. Seeing the need inspired He and the people. To the work. I mean he says here when he begins to speak to the people he says come let us build the wall there in verse 17 that we may no longer suffer derision that we may no longer suffer disgrace it was a disgrace for them as the people of God the one true God for the city to lie in ruin we must see the need second necessity we see here is to catch the vision in verses 17 and 18 Nehemiah begins to share the vision that God had placed with his, within his own heart He speaks to the people. Now, we don't know the audience or the makeup of the audience that he spoke of here. We're not sure if it was the large assembly of all the citizens or if it was just the rulers and the nobles and the heads of the tribes. We don't know, but at some point, surely, he spoke to everybody because the work was going to be done by everyone. What we do know is that Nehemiah, when he did speak to the people, appealed to both their national as well as their spiritual heritage. See, the critical issues were not safety and security. As I just said, it was about all honor and respect. It was about the glory of Almighty God. And the shambles of Jerusalem reflected badly upon their religious faith. Nehemiah also in these verses laid out the plan to reverse this shameful state. He said to them, come, let us build. Let us build the wall of Jerusalem See, the way to exalt the name of God among these pagan peoples that they lived within was to rebuild the walls of the city. And in addition to the plan, he told them all that God had been doing for the last several months. So he's casting the vision. He says, we got to rebuild the walls. It's important to rebuild the walls, but not only should we rebuild the walls, but this is something God's placed in my own heart. It's not something I came up with, and here's proof. God has done this and this and this, and he shows them all the things that God has already been orchestrating to bring him to this point. He cast the vision, and as a result, the people caught the vision, and they, with one voice, said, let us rise and build. Let us rise up and build. The second or the third necessity we see in this: not only see the need and catch the vision, but if we're going to s- inspire people to the work, they need to understand. We need to understand to expect some opposition. We need to expect some opposition. We see this in verse ten as well as in verse nineteen. There in verse ten, when Nehemiah is traveling back to Judah. He's got his entourage with him. He's asked for these letters from the king because he understands he needs letters to give him safe passage as well as resources when he gets there. And so as he nears the land of Judah, he presents the papers to the officials in order to gain this safe passage. And all of a sudden, the news of what Nehemiah is there to do begins to travel amongst the leadership of the Persian Empire. The Bible tells us that two men, Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant, were very greatly displeased at the news. They didn't like the fact that this man had come back to seek the welfare of the Jewish people. Now, Sanballat was, a, was the governor of Samaria, and we're not quite sure who Tobiah was or what his role was. Perhaps he was a, an associate of Sanballat, perhaps he was a governor of a neighboring uh, area of, of, of the land there, but We know this, that these two leaders didn't like the fact that Nehemiah had come because they saw him, number one, as a threat to their political power. Number two, also, that he could lead the people of Jerusalem into some sort of rebellion that would cause a threat to the whole system. And so as the Jews moved toward the work, as we move now from verse 10 to verse 19, we see that as they're moving toward the work of rebuilding the walls and gates, The number of their opponents begins to increase. Now it's no longer Sanballat and Tobiah. A man by the name of Geshem joins them. Geshem wasn't a Persian official. He was actually the king of Qadar. This is a, a very expansive area from northern Arabia all the way over to the borders of Egypt. And perhaps he joined the mocking and the ridiculing with Sanballat and Tobiah because he didn't like another political player on the playing field. And so these men begin to ridicule and begin to mock what the people of God are doing. As Nehemiah then entered Jerusalem and he started this process of rebuilding the walls, he expected some opposition. And that opposition came. Nehemiah expected opposition. Now I believe that's the reason he doesn't tell anybody right off the bat. He kind of incognito shows up and no one knows why he's there. He's got this entourage. He goes out at night, doesn't tell people where he's going or what he's looking at. He expected opposition. He knew that even within the community of the Jews, there would be differing opinions of what should happen. Some might even work against him. He, he, though, understood his job. He was clear on the objective, and he recognized that it wasn't just about rebuilding walls and gates. You see, I believe Nehemiah understood something we need to understand today. And that is, he was doing a spiritual work. And anytime you engage in the spiritual, anytime you engage in the work of God, you need to expect uh, some level of opposition from our enemy. You see, most work for God, what it does is it thrusts you into the arena of conflict. One of the reasons we commission our mission teams as we send them out on short-term missions is because we know they're going to do the work of God in a foreign land. And so we need to pray God's protection, God's provision. God would lead them and guide them and walk with them every single step of the way because there's an enemy out there that doesn't want them to succeed in what they're seeking to do. He doesn't want them to succeed in the mission. The same is true for anything that we would do around here. When we're working for God, it thrusts us into the arena of conflict, spiritual conflict conflict, the enemy, the devil is always on the alert. He's always ready to destroy any undertaking which would glorify the Lord or help others. We need to expect opposition. A fourth necessity to inspire people to the work is to rest in God's provision. Yeah, we need to expect opposition, but we have someone greater than our opposition. And the MI exemplifies that. He rested in the provision of God. See, here in the face of opposition, in the face of doubt, Nehemiah, what does he do? He face in to the Lord. He believes and he trusts. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem come to him and they say, what are you doing? Are you trying to lead a rebellion? See, what they're doing is, they're reminding him of what had happened just a few years earlier, when Ezra was rebuilding the temple and trying to rebuild the walls. An accusation was sent to King Artaxerxes saying, the city of Jerusalem, this city of rebelliousness is rising up against you, and he put a stop to that. Now these three men come back, they throw the same accusation into the mix, and Nehemiah doesn't flinch. What does he do? He rests in the provision of God he says the God of heaven will make us prosper we are his servants will arise and build but you have no claim or right here take your accusations take your doubt and hit the road jack he rested in the provision of God and so we see in this passage four necessities to inspire the people to the work and so what's the application for us how do these necessities apply? What is the implication for us today? Well, I believe they're applicable at every facet, every realm of our lives. I mean, every realm. If God's beginning to, to work within your heart, calling you to, to some task, to some sort of mission, to some sort of whatever, these four things are there. You need to see the need, You need to catch the vision. You need to understand that there's going to be some level of opposition, but rest in the providence and in the provision of Almighty God. But I also believe there's a very relevant portrayal of this as we move toward renovation in our own church facilities. Now, I'm I'm just going to tell you, my goal and my intention is not to use the book of Nehemiah to promote and to prop up the renovation that we're in the process of moving toward. But there is a very clear a very clear application here. Because as we move forward, we need to see the need. We need to catch the vision. And not just your pastor's vision. But this pastor ought to have the, God's, the our God's vision that I'm proclaiming it, and sharing with you. So what, God, what do you want us to do? And in, in all of that, understand there's going to be opposition. But we rest in the provision of Almighty God. So I'm not using Nehemiah to prop this up. But I see some very strong applications here. In fact, I, I, God put this... This this book and as well as Judges in my heart to preach through about a year and a half ago, and the reason I wanted to preach through them is not because of renovation or those things. I just see a pattern in humanity that we need to address, and that is in Judges we see the the people of God saying, "I'm going to do things my way. I don't care about what you want, God. I don't care what you're calling me to do. I don't trust you. I don't believe you. I believe in me." And so they they did things their their own way, and they suffered before it because of it. But we look at Nehemiah and we see a people who says, Lord, I've had enough of my way. I want to do it your way. I've had enough of fearfulness. I've had enough of faithlessness. Now I want to be a, a, a believer. I want to be one who trusts you. I want to be one who is courageous and steps out and believes God for what he wants to do in my life and in my home. And so bringing it back to the renovation, as we consider this undertaking uh, of taking this worship space here, our year our senior adult space that we're wanting to, to create in this hall back behind me, removing our church offices and, and building something new for our offices, we must embrace the necessary components of inspiration. See, we can't and we won't say like the Jews, let us rise up and build without these four things being true of our lives and so let's take a look at these components real quickly this morning and then we'll land the plane see the need why renovate that's a question that many people have asked me that's a question I'm sure every one of us in this room have asked or perhaps are even asking at this moment what is the need why renovate Last September, when we were looking at the three circles and we were learning how to share our faith a little bit more effectively, I shared with you some numbers. The North American Mission Board, which is our North American mission agency at Southern Baptist, tells us in their research that 75% of North America is lost and unchurched. And so if 75% of our county, if those numbers are true for our county, which I would say they're pretty close. If 75% are lost and unchurched in Powhatan, that means that 22,500 people living in this county are lost and headed to a devil's hell. And we know that the Bible has told us, we know that Jesus has commanded us to go and to reach our Jerusalem. You know, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I believe that we, living here in America, ought to understand that God has called us to reach our Jerusalem and then take the gospel out from there. It's a both-and thing. We don't just wait around in our Jerusalem to reach it, then we move to Samaria and all that. No, we reach them all at the same time. But we are responsible for reaching the people nearest to us. And so as we seek to reach our Jerusalem with the gospel, we need to understand that God gives us tools to do the work. And one of those tools is our church campus. It's the facility that we're setting in today. And in our culture here in America, the church building is still an effective tool. I say it's a tool because the building is not the church, right? Us sitting here today, we're the church. Those who are not with us today because they can't be but are members of our church. We, the people, are the church. The building is nothing more than a tool. And many times it is a very effective tool. So as we're out sharing our faith with people, as we're out seeking to make disciples in our community and inviting them to come and to worship with us and learn more about Jesus here in our worship settings, in our small group settings, we need to make sure that we have a tool that helps them have a very strong gospel-centered, missional experience. And so as a church then, it's imperative that we constantly keep our facilities current and clean. Current and clean clean. I mean, how many of you want to go and sit down in a place of business, whatever that business may mean, this to say restaurant, if it's not current and clean? I remember one time I, uh, we had just moved to Alabama. I was the pastor at First Baptist there in Sheffield. So people took us to, to lunch after the Sunday service. It might have been my first Sunday. We're sitting down at this, this Mexican restaurant place, and I love Hispanic food. And, and so I was ready, man. I was digging in. And all of a sudden, I, as I, we're sitting in this booth, I look over, and there is a roach Running up the wall. You know how many times I ate at that place? After that, very few. Only when somebody said, hey, man, why don't you go with me to this place? And I'd be like, all right. You know, I'd kind of choke it in and hope. I'd be like I was on the mission field. Lord, if I can get it down, you keep it in, right? (laughs) Current and clean. Clean. People come to our facilities, they want to see something current, they want to see something clean. It's got to be inviting to them. You see, the, the, the campus, we need to remember, is a tool, and tools can become dull. Tools can become ineffective. A few weeks ago, I was cutting some trees down in the backyard, and I noticed that my chainsaw wasn't cutting as effective as it once did. It was taking a lot of time. It felt like I had to just really grind it in there to see if it could cut a little bit better, and so I went and got a new chain for it, and guess what? That baby eats now. I mean, sawdust is flying everywhere. Why? Because the chain is sharp. The chain is effective. The idea of an axe carries the same sort of picture. I mean, you can swing the axe harder and harder, but you'll get better results if you sharpen the axe. Ecclesiastes 10.10 says, If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. So we've renovated in the last year or so our children's space and updated our parking lot situation. And by renovating our worship center, by changing up and making our senior adult class space a little bit more useful. What we're doing is further sharpening this tool so that we can be more effective in reaching our community with Christ. But hear me this morning. I'm not saying we we embrace some sort of come and see type mentality. No, the gospel tells us to go and tell, but we're to go and tell and bring others back with us. And we want them to find a place that is welcoming because it's, it's current and because it's clean. So, is this tool good, for, good enough for us? That's a question we need to consider. Is this tool good enough for us? Well, many of us in this room would say, absolutely. This tool, was it currently is, it's good enough, right? We've been here a long time. We're used to it. I mean, when you've been in a place long enough, you don't notice certain things, I was joking with someone the other day that I had heard a little rattle or I guess it was a grinding in my brakes as I was going down my driveway. And so I joked that I just turned the radio up. I just don't listen to it anymore, right? That's what happens when you're here all the time. You just become immune and, and, and blind to the things that are around us. And so it might be good enough for us, but we're not talking about us. We're talking about people who have yet to be reached, people who have yet to hear the gospel, people who have yet to be, dis- be in the process of being discipled. And so, our mission is to reach our Jerusalem, and this job is huge, so we better sharpen our tools. Why renovate? Because we need to be effective. Second, what is the vision? What do we need to do? What does what sharpening this tool look like? Well, look around you this morning. What do you see? Just do it. Take a look around. What do you see in this room? I see a good facility but not a great facility. I, I see a, a, a strong, but not very sharp facility. See, when this building was rebuilt after the fire that was in 1984, this, beautiful, this building was beautiful and this building was current. But today, 30-some years later, what do we see? We see a, a building that's in many ways out of date and showing its age. Yeah, the screen's still off, Right? I mean, we, we need some new technology. We need some things that are updated. The, these things are um, emotional. These screens are emotional. You've got to, like, baby them up there. I was trying to get one to work a few weeks ago with our trail off an AHG night, and it was this screen over here that was out. And I was fiddling around with it because it looked like it had a short in it, and it would come on and go off, and it come on and go off, and finally it just never came back on this morning. Apparently that's what's happened on the screen that's to my right behind me. We need to update and we need to take care of our facilities. We need to, to fix some things. We need to bring some things current. See, after, over the last three decades, the approach to ministry has changed greatly in uh, Christianity here in our country. Technology has changed. Architectural design has changed. All of those things matter. People are coming in. They see things. And we need to make sure we're current and we are clean. There's also a great need for senior adults to be on the main level of our our facilities here right behind me because we don't have an elevator. And I know many of you have, I think, jokingly and yet seriously said, we need an elevator, Pastor. Let me just tell you this. We may, we don't need an elevator. We could use an elevator. But financially, it is not the best use of our resources because an elevator would cost us at least $150,000 to put in. We can take $150,000 and use that in so many other different ways to renovate our facility rather than put an elevator in. So one of the ways to get past that is to bring all of our senior adult classes up to one level so you never have to go down to the fellowship hall unless you want to, like on Wednesday night, and in that case, you drive around, you come in the basement door, but on Sundays, you park up at this level, and you never have to go up or down a step so that's a great need. And so this renovation, in this renovation, we're going to update our worship center. We're going to update our foyer. We're going to relocate those senior adult classes to the main floor behind me, which means we've got to move our offices out. So that means we will build a new office building. That's the vision. That's the need. Who's going to oppose this? Please don't raise your hand. <laughs> or maybe we should all raise our hand. see, as we understand the need and as we catch the vision for renovating, we need to remember that there will be some level of opposition from every one of us. I mean, even right now, there are, there are some, I'm sure, saying to themselves, we don't need that. The building's fine. Why are you saying that statement? Why are you making that statement? Because it's fine for you. You're not thinking about those who have yet to come. See, the, the the problem we run in this is that we put our desires and our emotions and our attachments and, and what we want into a project. I, I've been serving for the last several months on the, the committee for our school system to redraw the lines for our elementary schools you know it's a big deal and so we had our last meeting the other night I'm not going to give you the results of it but I as we were reading through all the comments that came up came in through the school board's website in relation to this every one of them was personal well, I shouldn't say everyone some of them had rationale and they were saying hey good job understand your job's hard uh, we're in it no matter what you decide but many of them 90 plus percent of the responses was all personal we just built a house in this particular district. We built our house there so we could be in that school system. And the way these things are being drawn, we're going to have to be in a different school. We don't want that. We don't want to be moved. So they weren't thinking about the overall impact of what's necessary in our, our county. They were just thinking about themselves. So as we think about a renovation, we've got to be careful that we're not just looking at it through our lens and our perspectives and our wants. We need to be looking at what's in the future, how's this going to help us better reach our community. Again, this is a tool to be used for the glory of God to make disciples in our Jerusalem. Some others were saying we, we can't afford it. We can't renovate because we cannot afford it. I mean, look around. Where's the Bill Gates sitting in this crowd? We're a small church. We cannot do it. Absolutely, we cannot do it on our own. But we sang earlier a whole lot of songs about the greatness of God. Do we believe in the greatness of God that we sing about? Because if you believe in the greatness of God, Jesus says, what you call impossible, I call possible. I'm the God of the impossible. Uh, Nehemiah is saying, "How, how can a man be born again? He says, hey... What you say is impossible, I could say is impossible. Put your faith in me, and I'll change your life. I mean, all throughout the scripture, here in Nehemiah, we see all these examples of how God does the impossible. I mean, who would have thought that the king of Persia media could, could have his heart changed, and yet God did that. And so, for us, the opposition will most likely come from within rather than outside the church. I, I don't expect to have a ride up in the Powhatan today or the Richmond Times or whatever the Richmond papers called. I don't expect to see, see this ride up blasting us for renovating our facilities. But we will, in within, begin to eat our own if we're not careful, because the opposition will come. And so, we got to look within our own hearts and just ask the question: Do I believe God can do this? Do I believe God can use me, my resources, my position, where I'm at, my income, everything about me, to be a part of what God wants to do to better reach our Jerusalem? Will you rest in the providence and the provision of God? How can we rest in his provision? Well, we've got to believe that God can do the impossible. We've got to believe that nothing is impossible with him. That's what the Jews did when they caught this vision from Nehemiah. I mean, think about it. There in verse 17, as he's sharing, he says, let us rise and build. Let us build the walls of Jerusalem. Let's do this so that we're no longer suffering derision. No, we're no longer a disgrace to the people. That, that our God receives the glory that is due his name. Let's do this. What do they say? They say, let us rise up and build. They didn't negotiate. They didn't say, I don't know about it. They didn't say, let's go pray about it. They just said, here's the vision. We believe God has spoken. Let's Build and trust. you got to remember who these people are. They're poor people. They're like us, right? They're just like, they're common, everyday people. They're not noble. They're not the, 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 the aristocracy. There's, these are not the elite of, of, the, of the land. These are common, ordinary people that are just trying to make it day in and day out. And they say, let us rise up and build. We will trust in the provision of God. If we're not careful, we won't believe God. If God has put this into our hearts, if God has placed a vision here, I want to tell you this morning, we can trust it, and he will see it through. He will provide every resource we need. He will provide them through us. And if we're willing to trust him, he will do the absolute miraculous. I believe God is going to teach us through this whole project, not just... uh, about the project itself. I believe that God is gonna take this project and stretch us like never before so that we become a much more faithful people. See, we're going to have a stewardship campaign and we're going to teach stewardship in a a number of months and we're going to do all of that. And what I've been trying to remind our renovation team and our staff and everyone is that it's not just about this project. God's going to take this project and grow us internally, grow our faith, grow our abilities to trust Him and to believe Him, and our abilities to give like never before. And today we've got a problem in that area. We've got a problem trusting in the provision of God. You say, Pastor, how do you know that? Because it happens every single week. And right now, you're saying, I don't know if I could ever give above what I give to this project because I, I just don't see the ways to do it. Well, the problem is is you're more than likely, there's a good chance, you're not even given the biblical tithe right now. I had our finance department, uh, I gave them some... Uh, some things to run uh, after today, this, so this next week. But I got one report back a little prematurely and it showed me that in this current budget year, almost five months now, that at least 40% of our people, our contributors, have given $500 or less in the last almost five months. It could be as high as 57% of our contributors. You, so you look at those numbers from my perspective, you're like, whoa. We're about to enter into this renovation project that's not going to be cheap. And, and here's almost a half, if not more than half of our contributors are not even tithing. You say, how do you know you're not tithing? Well, if you, let's just say you're on Social Security and you bring in 1000 a month or 1200 a month, that's at least $500 that you should have been given in this last five months. And, and so the average person has been giving $250 in this last five months in those numbers that I just shared. And so that tells me there's a strong percentage of our contributors, our people, you sitting here this morning, that are not tithing. What is a tithe? The tithe is 10%. That's how you enter into this giving as a Christian. Now, you may debate with me. I would encourage you to go back to August. I preached for three or four weeks on stewardship. Go back, listen to those messages. All my manuscripts are there on our website. Read through it. And then, after you've had that time to ponder and meditate upon what the scripture says, come, let's have a discussion. I wanna encourage you and challenge you in this area because I firmly believe, I'm convinced, I'm under deep conviction that as a follower of Jesus, under new covenant that the tithe is applicable that's where you enter into this life of stewardship as a follower of Jesus Christ and so if you're not doing that on a weekly basis yeah this idea of of being challenged to give above and beyond is going to be scary to you you're going to be fearful and you're going to say no why because you haven't even become obedient to the very basics of biblical stewardship So I'm going to challenge you this morning that this would be a good day for you to become faithful in in the area of biblical stewardship. Take the tithe. So if you made $500 this week, $50 of it goes to the Lord. Well, what is that, the net or the gross? Well, as my friend and mentor Johnny Hunt says, which one do you want God to bless the most? Right? I give off the gross. I think you should give off the gross. Because Uncle Sam is going to get his part, but every bit of it came from the Lord. And so, give back to the Lord, give faithfully, give sacrificially, give joyfully, give obediently. And it ought to start today. So as we think about the vision of God, we think even about a renovation, we think about how do I get inspired to do the work. It all comes down to, well, I rest in the provision of God. This morning, you could be, take these same four things As I said earlier. They're applicable to every situation. And, and perhaps if one of us came to you, one of the leaders of our church came and says, we really believe that you'd be a good person for this particular ministry position. Would you think about it? Would you pray about it? Here's four things. You need to understand the need. What is the need in this ministry area? What's the vision for this ministry area? Uh, expect some opposition. The, the devil's going to speak to you. The devil's going to discourage you. There's going to be things that come against that. But all in all, rest in the provision Of God. You say, I'm not a people person. Your pastor's probably not very good of a people person, right? If you get to know me very much, you know that I'm a little bit introverted. But God just, His provision's always there, gives me what I need at the time that I need it. So we see here in the story of Nehemiah a story of resolution. It's a story of direction because it's a story of living for the purposes of God. Nehemiah didn't live for himself. The people here that He's leading, they didn't live for themselves. After Nehemiah had surveyed this wall and determined the repairs needed, what did he do? He went and gathered the people and he said, Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. We know that for years the people had languished, overwhelmed by foreign domination. They were uncertain about what to do next. But Nehemiah arrives upon the scene with a clear goal in view and one that fit the greater designs of God. And as a result, the people replied, Let us rise up and build. And what did they do? They went to the work. They went to the work. We must do the same. We must dare to survey the conditions around us, not with the intent of criticizing, but with the resolve to rebuild. This morning, church, we need to rebuild the walls of stewardship within our church. This morning, we need to rebuild the walls of evangelism in our church. Not only should should you be a steward of, of the numerical financial resources, but, man, be a steward of the gospel that Jesus has given to you. Some of you have not shared the gospel one time in your whole Christian life. We need to rebuild the walls of evangelism, and we need to rebuild our walls here in the church. So let's, this morning, let's prepare our hearts We're going to stand and sing in just a moment. And as I said earlier, today is the day that these things need to start in all of our lives. We need to declare our dependence upon Almighty God. As we sing earlier about His great name and His great grandeur, and we sing about His glory, do we really believe that? How dare us trust the Lord with our eternity? We trust the Lord to remove our sins from us How dare us not trust him with just a little bit of financial resources? Will you trust him today? Even as we move to an invitation and and, and an offering, will you trust him with your finances? Will you trust him with your salvation? Will you trust him in the area of sharing the gospel? Will you trust him in the area of serving and all the things that God may be leading you to do personally, will you trust him? And so would you stand with me and let's pray and ask the Lord to continue to speak to our hearts. And then we're going to sing a song of response. And as we sing the song of response, this front section up here is open. It's an altar for you. If you want to come and just get on your knees and pray, maybe you want to call somebody up here with you, maybe you needs me to pray with you. Perhaps this morning, as Nick was sharing with us how there's a great need in some lives for them to be saved. Perhaps this morning you realize that you're nothing but religious, but you've never come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ in your life. This morning, as we sing, this is a time for you to respond. I want to encourage you to come forward. I want to encourage you to be obedient. I want to encourage you to do what God is leading you to do. Lord Jesus, I praise you this morning that you are a God who can do the impossible. All throughout Scripture, we see this testified. God, we see you doing amazing things. We see you in the face of opposition, splitting the Red Sea, and the people of God walking on dry ground. God, we see you in the moments where there seems to be no resources, no food, no water, and all of a sudden, the quails of heaven come in, and the rock splits open, and there's bountiful, plentiful food and water. God, I thank you that in Scripture we see that there's no hope because of our sin. And that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. We are cut off from God. We are on our way to a devil's hell. And then there is God who steps in our way and takes our place. And Lord Jesus, you shed your blood on that cross so that our sins could be forgiven. Past, present, and future. And you declare there boldly, to "I it is finished so God, I pray this morning that we would not only trust you with our salvation, but God, we would trust you with our finances. And God, we would not only trust you with our eternity, but we would trust you with our today, even in the life of this church. God, may we be a faithful people. So as we sing in response to the word of God, lead us, Holy Spirit. God, there's some who just need to sit down in their seat and take their checkbook out and write their tithe because they hadn't done that in a long time. Father, there's others that are sitting here this morning. They need to come to this altar, get on their knees and cry out to you, confessing sin. There's others, Lord, that perhaps they need to ask you to become the Lord and Savior of their life. So God, speak into our hearts. Give us ears to hear. God, remove any opposition that would lead us away from the decisions you're leading us to make and help us to be faithful and obedient. We pray in the name of Jesus, amen.